following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. All my life was full of when Jesus found me All my heart was full of misery and woe Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me And he led me in the way I ought to go No one ever cared for me like Jesus, there's no other friend so strong as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. from me 
how much he cared for me. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. A friend, Brother Ed, who does all of the editing of our video and uploads all of our broadcasts on podcast, found a book entitled Pure Gold. It's an old book, back in the 1800s. It was written by G.D. Watson. I'd like to share today some of his thoughts on tenderness of spirit. You know, there is a a natural hardness, an utter destitution of heavenly and divine tenderness of spirit in the heart of a natural man. It's that tenderness of spirit that makes the difference in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read for you what he says about it. The very essence of the gospel is a divinely imparted tenderness and sweetness of spirit. Without this, even the strongest religious life is a misrepresentation of the true Christ life. Even among intensely religious people, nothing is more rare than a continuous, all-pervading spirit of tenderness. Tenderness of spirit comes from the divine. It's not the delicacy and the soft sensibility of mere gentle makeup of body and mind which some persons just naturally possess to a high degree. Neither is it the tenderness of mind and manner which results from high culture and beautiful social training, though these can be very valuable in life. But tenderness of spirit is a supernatural work that flows through the whole spiritual being, It's an exquisite interior fountain of God's own sweetness and tenderness of nature, opened up in the inner spirit to such a degree that it completely inundates the soul. It overflows all the mental faculties, saturating with its sweet waters the manners, the expressions, the words, tones of the voice tenderness of spirit mellows the will softening the judgments melting the affections refining the manners 
and molding the whole being after the image of him who was infinitely meek and lowly in heart. Tenderness of spirit cannot be borrowed or put on for a special occasion. It is supernatural, and it must flow it must flow out incessantly from the inner fountain of the life and resembles having every atom of our being soaked in sweet oil. Now for a moment let me go back. My experience is that there is a natural hardness in every man and woman. There is a a destitution of of heavenly and divine tenderness of spirit. And it's like this hardness is like a, a rattlesnake coiled in the heart. If you displease this person or you cause them pain, that rattlesnake is ready to strike. And it results in judgments, condemnation, self-righteousness, It results in the destruction of a community, of a fellowship. This hardness is made up of the opinions of man, the rules of man, the regulations of man, the social norms of man, and all of those in the face of the cross have to be crushed. We are called to walk the way of Jesus Christ, the way of the cross. I want to read for you a scripture. It's found in in Mark, Mark the 8th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 34. After having called the multitude with his disciples, he said to them, Whatever or whoever wills to follow after me, he must deny himself and must take up his cross and must follow me. Now, whoever may be willing and wanting to save his life will lose it. But whoever may lose his own life for my sake and the gospel, this one will save it. For what will it profit a man if he may gain the whole world, and yet he may suffer the loss of his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now whoever may be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with his Father, with the holy angels." What will it profit a a man if he gains the whole world? If he allows that hardness of heart to rule mind, body, and spirit, what will it profit that man when he loses his soul? This tenderness of spirit that I speak of today, it's a supernatural work of God. Back to the book, Deep 
tenderness of spirit is the very soul and marrow of the Christ life. <clears throat> Without it, the most vigorous life of righteousness and zeal and good works and rigid purity of morals, missionary reform, profuse liberality, self-denial, the most blameless conduct, utterly fail to measure up to the Christ life unveiled in the New Testament. It is impossible to see the infinite excellence and necessity of real heavenly tenderness of spirit unless it is specifically and specially revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It takes a direct revelation from God to enable us to discern what is the very marrow and fatness of Christ's character, his tenderness, his gentleness of nature. This is the Christ life. What specific gravity is to the planet, what beauty is to the rainbow, what perfume is to the rose, This is what tenderness of spirit is to the Christian life. Without tenderness of spirit, the most intensely religious, righteous life is like the image of God without his beauty and attractiveness. <clears throat> it's possible to be very religious and staunch and persevering in all the Christian duties, even to be sanctified, to be a brave defender and preacher of holiness, to be an orthodox Christian, blameless in outward life and very zealous for good works, and yet to be greatly lacking in tenderness of spirit, that all-subduing all-milting love, which is the very essence of heaven and which incessantly streamed out from the eyes and voice of Jesus Christ. Many religious people seem to be loaded, <clears throat> pardon me, seem to be loaded with good fruits, but the fruit tastes green. It lacks flavor and October mellowness. There's a touch of vinegar in their sanctity. Their very purity has an icy coldness to it. You know, I've experienced that so many times. It's probably been one of the most painful parts of my journey as a Christian pastor over these many years. It is that touch of vinegar. It is that icy coldness expressed either toward me <clears throat> or toward others in the church. It is the pharisaical self-righteousness. It is the shutting out of a brother or a sister. <clears throat> It's a turning away in judgment on another person. 
This destroys the body of Christ. And it poisons the heart of the person who walks in it. He continues, They seem to have a baptism on them, but it is not composed of those sweet spices of cinnamon and calamus and cassa, which God told Moses to compound as a fragrant type of the real sweetness of the Holy Spirit. Their testimonies can be very straight and definite, but they lack a melting quality. Their prayers are intelligent and strong and pointed, but they lack the heart-piercing pathos of the dying Jesus. The summer heat in them is lacking. They can even preach eloquently and explain with utmost nicety what is actual and original sin, what is pardon and purity. But they lack the burning flame, that interior furnace of throbbing love that sighs and weeps and breaks down under the shriveling heat of the all-consuming love. Oh, I want that. I want that flame of all-consuming love in my life. I've been crying out to God for that. I'm a preacher of holiness. I'm a preacher of righteousness. But I also must be a preacher of, of love and tenderness. Pastor David Wilkerson many years ago called me aside as he was my pastor and he shook his finger in my face and he said, Brother Ray, at the National Prayer Chapel you preach judgment with mercy. I did not fully understand at that time what he was talking about. It's been as I have moved on through the years and now I've lost him. He's gone to his reward. I understand much, much, much more. Our, our author, G.D. Watson, in this book, Pure Gold, continues... This all-pervading tenderness of spirit is not usually found in the beginning in the life of a Christian. It's not a product of October. It's not a product of April, but a product of October. It's not the sap that flows up in the grapevine in early spring, but it's the sweet wine, the pure, unfermented juice of the grape, which is crushed out under the mighty squeeze of the wine press. Real tenderness of spirit can never be known except through great suffering. Nothing but the wine press of sorrow can yield it, and it matters not what shape the trial may be, whether an unutterable sorrow for sin or extreme poverty 
or great physical pain or relentless persecution or the wear and tear of a thousand daily annoyances or the agony of unrequited love or lifelong loneliness or heartbreaking disappointment. These or any other forms of sorrow only constitute the shape of the wine press. The result may be the same, that is, the sweetness of heavenly wine from the grapes of crushed red hearts. There is no saintly character recorded in the Bible or outside of it who did not pass through the wine press to reach universal tenderness and sweetness of spirit. An aside. I've gone through a, a time of great crushing in the last several months. I've been praising Jesus for it. I am greatly grieved by those who have caused the crushing. I love them and I pray for them. But I yesterday was talking with the Lord about all of this. <laughs> and I suddenly realized that new vistas of, of tenderness had been opened in my heart. I didn't open them, Jesus did. New understandings, and, and not intellectual understandings, but spirit understandings, had been opened. And there was a great quietness that came over my whole being. And I recognized that through the sorrow of these last months at the National Prayer Chapel, that I had nothing to be defensive about or angry about. I had not walked into any sin. I had not violated the will of God in any manner and yet was accused of such. And at the beginning of that very painful time of crushing, I had made a vow. I will not bite anyone. I will not defend. I will simply lay out the facts and then leave them right there. But an Absalom had come in, whom I dearly love. Whom I dearly love. Whom I have sacrificed much for. And I began to recognize a tenderness flowing in my heart toward him and, and toward others. That deep brokenness of heart, that wine press that crushes us, the disappointments, the heartbreaking, the loneliness the agony of of all of the crushing. I learned a new phrase. In the midst of all of this, I learned a new phrase. I've always talked about on the radio 
dying to self. I begin to have I began to have a new phrase go through my mind and my heart, and that new phrase was sinking into God's love. Just not holding myself rigid anymore. Just sinking into Jesus. You know, he calls us to enter into his rest. That word rest in the Greek is literally to repose. At night when I go to bed, I just sink into my bed. I don't try to hold myself up above my bed. I just sink into it. Part of what I recognized was happening in my spirit and in my heart is through these last crushings I've begun to just sink more and more deeply into Jesus I want to completely disappear in him I want only Jesus to be seen I want only Jesus to be heard on this broadcast I don't want Ray Greenley to be heard or seen I want Jesus to be seen I want to sink fully into Jesus Christ. Continuing with the book, he says, it is in connection with Job's manifold and strange suffering that he said, God hath made his heart soft. It is only in the suffering and the crushing of the winepress that our hearts are made soft. It is when our hearts have been crushed with sorrow from rejection that we begin to sink into Jesus. Madame Guon says that while we are purified from sin by the blood of Jesus, yet the attributes and the constitution of our nature must be utterly broken under the manifold cross of suffering to render us divine-like in our feelings and sympathies. And Paul says, the weight of glory that will weigh us down depends on the afflictions through which we pass to work out that result. We often come across Christians who are bright and clever, articulate and strong, even righteous. But in fact, they seem a little too bright and a little too clever. They seem so much of self in their strength and in their very declaration of their righteousness. They seem severe and critical, judgmental. They have everything to make them saints except the crushing weight of an unspeakable crucifixion that would grind them into a supernatural tenderness and limitless charity for others 
I know men who are so fixed in their beliefs of the cross and the doctrines of the church. And they're quick to tell you how you're wrong and what you need to do and why you can't do what you're doing. But that sweet supernatural tenderness and that limitless love and charity for others is simply missing from their lives. And so their words are brittle. Their words are harsh because they've not ever been crushed totally, completely. I've seen a man get up from desperate conditions and after they pass, he's back on his high horse telling you what you're doing wrong and how you must change what you're doing with no concept that you belong to Jesus and that Jesus is the one who has crushed your heart and that you've simply sunk into Jesus and now any more accusation, any more judgment just causes you to desire to sink even deeper into Jesus and be hidden in him. You see, if these men and women are chosen of God, God has a wine press prepared for them through which they will someday pass, which will turn the metallic hardness of their nature into gentle love which Christ always brings forth at the last of the feast. Remember Cana of Galilee. I remember my trip a short time ago to Israel, going to Cana of Galilee. The wine at the last was much better than the wine served at first. It was the wine made by Jesus that was the very best. It's that that gentle love. This is the fine wine. Divine tenderness of spirit has a behavior to which is superhuman. It's heavenly. And we have to quickly say, it's not of me. I was not tender-hearted. I was judgmental. I was angry. I was accusatory. And oh, I have been all of that. This supernatural tenderness of heart comes from the very heart of heaven from Jesus this tenderness instinctively avoids wounding the feelings of others by talking on unpleasant things arguing judging wrangling in an argumentative way by demanding that I'm right and you're wrong instead this tenderness has a great curiosity about it It gently probes with 
tender questions. It does not constantly take a person back to mortifying subjects. It's very painful when a when a dear Absalom brings up every fault of the past and puts the worst possible spin on it and then goes about talking with everyone and convicting them that this pastor is a wicked man. Divine tenderness of spirit does not do that. It carries its point by ceasing to contend, and it wins its opponent by seeming to let him have his way while he is being loved and cared for. It cannot scold or scowl or threaten or desert. It has lost the power of quarreling. It has lost interest in gossip. It no longer desires to judge. It instinctively buries and forgets all bad things. People who live in hot climates bury their dead very soon after death. In like manner, tenderness of spirit lives in the torrid zone of God's love and quickly buries all putrid things out of its sight. No scene in the Bible opens up a greater vista into the tenderness of the Spirit of Jesus than where he stopped, bent down, and began writing on the ground as his modest and loving heart did not want to hear the horrible account of evil as they bring before him a woman caught in the act of adultery, disheveled, shamed, terrified. Jesus just bent down and began to write in the dust. We gaze there on the soul of Jesus at that time and we see infinite politeness both toward the accused and the accusers. There was not a single trace of unkindness or severity to either party. His whole manner and speech and disposition filled the air as with a very sea of refinement and gentleness and inexpressible sweetness of spirit. Jesus did not condemn the woman and he did not condemn those who brought her to him. He simply bent down and began to record probably the sins of all of those who stood there. And great conviction began to fall upon their hearts. And they turned and walked away. He could have railed at them. He could have said, you foolish men, what do you think you're doing bringing this woman to me? You're trying to entrap me and I'm not going to be entrapped by you. Take her away and do whatever you want to do. But don't come to me with this wickedness. There was none of that in Jesus' heart. He did not retaliate. 
You see why I want this tenderness of spirit to fill my heart? I want this tenderness of spirit to fill your heart. We must become like Jesus. And it's not sufficient to know the doctrine. It's not sufficient to know to know all the facts. A man can live a holy life, be utterly given to service, and one man can bring false accusations against him, and suddenly he is standing deserted, even though he has been faithful in his duty. I've seen it many times. I was in a mega church in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was there as the guest of the senior pastor. And it was... It was Easter time, the Sunday before. Palm Sunday. And this dear pastor sat on the platform with his elders, his leaders, and rejoiced in the wonderful goodness of God to them. We celebrated Passover together. We went to dinner afterwards and had a a sweet time sharing. This man had such a sweet, sweet spirit, such an incredibly godly man, dearly beloved by his church. The following week, I called him to thank him for his hospitality, his kindness, to tell him how much I admired his ministry. And with brokenness and tears, he told me that the the board of his church had just voted to dismiss him. I said, why? He said, because they want a younger man to come who can change the church ministry sufficient to bring in crowds for we have a debt obligation and they feel that I'm not causing the church to grow rapidly enough and so they have dismissed me. I said, I'm so sorry. He said, no, no, Brother Ray, it's a crushing and I'll come out sweeter than I was before. I said, what will you do? He said, Billy Graham Ministries has invited me to join on their team. And so my wife and I will be joining the Billy Graham team. I have always admired that man's gentle courage in the face of such wickedness, for he had founded the church and was summarily dismissed because he was not considered a good enough businessman even though the church had thousands they wanted 10,000 Jesus 
Jesus' acts of love and compassion are like an opening between the mountains through which we look far off at an outspreading silver sea of love that presents to us an unspeakable tenderness toward the poor sinner he came to save. Tenderness of spirit makes its home in the heart of Jesus. And from that holy castle looks out upon all other creatures, good and bad, and through the hopeful pleading medium of the of the heart that was pierced on the cross. Tenderness of spirit is the divine sympathy with the poor and the downtrodden, the unfortunate, and the hated classes of mankind. The heart of Jesus naturally reached out to those who are the common butt of worldly scorn. Whenever it hears of any of these spoken of in a harsh and bitter way. He feels a dagger in his heart. The tear of sympathy comes to his eyes. God hears the sighing of the prisoner and the cries of the unfortunate. The heart of Jesus feels all things from God's standpoint and lives but to receive and transmit the spotless sympathies and affections of Jesus. It understands the words of the Holy Ghost, Be ye tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Tenderness must be the very nature and forgiveness Tenderness must be in the very nature, and forgiveness is the behavior of that nature. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, kindness, not coldness, not legalism, not rigidness, not orthodoxy. I pray that as you come and visit the National Prayer Chapel, you will find there a people broken, humble, contrite. A people who have submitted to the God of heaven, who have resisted the devil and who have allowed themselves to sink deeply into Jesus. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians. It speaks in chapter 12 about the body is a unit though it's made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. We were all baptized 
by one spirit into one body? Whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body's not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? And it is there, as it is there as many parts of one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You know, as I read through this description of the body of Christ, the church There is one part that is not named. It's a part called a thorn. A thorn. There's not a thorn that is a part of the body. I've met many thorns. They're always there to resent authority. They're always there with their own notions of how everything should run in the body, but they stand aloof of the body. They never really join and become a part of the body. They are the floating advisors, the accusers. They don't want to make a commitment. Oh, they'll contribute in small ways, but they don't want to be included in the body. They want to sit on the back seat. I remember when I was just a child, there was a man by the name of Aaron. I loved Aaron. He would always go to every church business meeting, and he always had lots of questions to push the pastor with. But he was not a member of the church. He always had judgments to make, but he was never really a part of the church. He always stood aside. He never wanted to make a commitment. And yet the people gave him great weight in the church. 
others would join with him in his thorn behavior. I always felt sorry for the pastors because of this thorn in the church. We love them. We wish for their freedom in Christ. But they're always wanderers. There are other parts that are also not included. Judgers. Gossips. These are not included as a part of the body of Christ. He continues in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those who are able to help others, and those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. But he says in verse 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And he says, now I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And now he describes love, tenderness. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not, it does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, we're out of time for today's broadcast. I pray for you. Please pray for me. This has been a very difficult time for the National Prayer Chapel. Pray for us, please. Lift us up before the throne of heaven. God is not finished with us. He has put such breaking in our hearts and such cries for God's mercy and such deep repentance and such tender mercy such tender love 
I invite you to come. Come and visit us. I also ask, would you help us with this month's radio bill? I've learned through the years the only way that a radio station broadcast can be made and paid for is if God's people step forward and say, this word is so valuable to me, I'm going to lay it all on the line and make sure it stays on the air. Because of the brokenness in the prayer chapel that we've gone through, we're not going to be able to pay our share this month. I ask, would you help us? Would you write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I welcome you to come visit us. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you'll find directions for the National Prayer Chapel. And you'll find many podcasts and other things that will help you in this Christian journey. My brother, my sister, I can't tell you how much I love you, how much you mean to me, your faithfulness before God. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.